No mai hare mai, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. This September, New Zealand will vote to determine if the End of Life Choice Act will come into force, legislation that would create a new system of legal assisted dying for people who meet certain criteria. Since Lucretia Seals went public with her appeal for legal euthanasia in January 2015, a lot has been said publicly about the ideas of euthanasia, assisted suicide, choice and dying. However, this referendum is not about our views on the concept of euthanasia or assisted dying. It asks us instead if we think the End of Life Choice Act should come into force. Yes or no? Looking at the text of the Act and the public information provided about the referendum, it's tempting, particularly as a layperson, to just read the words on the page, take them at face value, without really knowing how they might translate into real-life medical practice in hospitals, rest homes, doctor surgeries, and even our homes all across New Zealand. To try and get some context on this, this month we're doing a deep dive into the text of the End of Life Choice Act with Maxim Institute euthanasia researcher Danielle Van Dalen and Dr. Stephen Child. Danielle has been working on this topic since she started working at Maxim in 2016, doing international research, drafting submissions and briefing MPs as the legislation progressed through Parliament. Stephen is a medical specialist who trained in Canada and has worked in Auckland since 1994. He's had an extensive career in clinical education and medical policy, serving as the chair of the New Zealand Medical Association between 2015 and 2017, and he's currently serving as an elected member of the New Zealand Medical Council. We sat down together a while ago for a conversation about what the End of Life Choice Act entails and what New Zealanders should know before they go to the polls. All right, so Stephen, uh, you've been around this issue for quite a long time now, and you've done countless debates and public information evenings as a doctor and also someone who's worked on policy and practice for the medical profession. I mean, before we start on the actual act itself, do you have any general comments on this? Yes, well, I think I probably said to you before uh, informally, Jeremy, that it's not a topic that I enjoy talking about. Um, almost everyone I've spoken to, whether it be in a formal presentation or an informal discussion with friends, um, it becomes an emotional issue, and I fully understand that. I personally um, have had a neighbor uh, who has committed suicide when he was facing uh, terminal cancer. I have seen patients uh, myself uh, regularly um, who have had these issues, um, and I've had friends friends. Um, so it, it, like most people, it's an emotional issue that hits at the heart, not at the brain. And I fully understand that when it's discussing this issue. It's interesting because there's a spectrum, really, when you're also having the conversation. Some people are of the view that thou shalt not kill. And to them, the whole conversation ends at that point. Other people on the other end of the spectrum believe purely it's autonomy. It is purely my right to decide, uh, and why should anyone else interfere with that right? And for them, the conversation also can sometimes start off quite closed. Um, but one of the interesting questions that I've said to the people that are on that end of the spectrum is, all right, so if we believe in autonomy, and purely it is patient's choice, then why haven't we proposed putting the medication available in the pharmacies and if you sign informed consent uh, and you show proof of age uh, or a citizenship residency, um, then you can have access to the medication and that truly is your choice. And I think even when I have you know, publicly had these conversations or even debates with David Seymour uh, directly, I think most people when I say that feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, they say, yes, I, I, I fully think that is the question about autonomy and choice, but they're uncomfortable about making it freely available in pharmacies because they recognize that there's a difference between what we deem a suicide 
and euthanasia at the end of life or assisted suicide at the end of life. Um, and there was a term in Canada that described this uh, as a rational suicide versus an irrational suicide. And that's essentially what the conversation starts to center around. In other words, if a person says, I believe my life is unbearable uh, and I wish to end my life, what we're discussing about is, does society believe that that decision is a rational decision? And can we make some appropriate rules around assisting them, but also ensuring that someone whose society deems is irrational in that decision is not accessing it? And an interesting statistic, even in the Netherlands, where um, this sort of legislation has been available for uh, well, 2003, uh, about 17 years or so, about a third of people I understand who request end-of-life assistance have their request granted. So for two-thirds of people, they go to their doctor, they request assistance and end-of-life, and the reply is, no, we in society do not believe either your suffering is unbearable or that you are making a rational decision in your suicide. And I've often wanted to talk to people who have been through that situation because I'm sure those people would feel cheated in some ways. Um, we have legislation that says I'm allowed to request uh, end-of-life uh, assistance, and yet someone else has decided for me that uh, my decision isn't rational. Uh, and I guess the reason why I talk on this issue a little bit is because I'm the doctor. Um, and in this particular legislation and act, um, either directly or indirectly, you're asking me to decide on behalf of society whether your decision is rational or irrational. And I think many of us in the profession don't want to be in that decision of deciding rational or irrational. We th we, if we do believe in autonomy, which we do in our medical ethics, you know, we strongly believe it is the patient's right to make their own decisions, just like we believe in it's society's right to have a conversation about this legislation. But the difficulty comes in the detail of the legislation of how you try to define the difference. I, I just want to jump in there, Stephen. I completely agree and want to echo your comments around how this is a really difficult issue. And New Zealanders are generally not very good at talking about death. It, it's something that we try and push out of our everyday life as much as possible. The fact that this is going to referenda, that politicians voted on this and decided that it would become a referenda issue means that we are now required or given this responsibility as citizens to have this difficult conversation and do it to the best of our ability. Now we're going to move on to the actual End of Life Choice Act 2019, which I have in my hands. The most important thing about this is that we are not just voting on the concept of euthanasia or the concept of having choice in being able to end our own lives or, or have assistance to end our own lives. Uh, we're actually voting on what's in this particular bill and it's quite long. Um, I printed it out here. It's 27 pages long. So we're not going to read through the whole 27 pages. Danielle and I have sort of prepped this and, and, and gone through it and found some areas that basically require some translation. The, the words that are on the page here are actually really important and we need to understand not just what they say, not just what the intent of this wording is, but actually how these words would be employed uh, when it came into real life. Turning into part one, uh, which is the preliminary provisions, um, this part contains all the definitions of all the words that are used throughout the Act and the definitions of the, the things that are being talked about, and then outlines the eligibility criteria that will be used to determine if someone qualifies for assisted dying. So starting with definitions, 
we've heard different terms for this thrown around like euthanasia, assisted suicide, assisted dying, medical aid and dying and all of that. But what do these terms mean and what precisely would be made legal if the End of Life Choice Act comes into effect after the referendum? I think it's really important to actually just start by touching on what Stephen talked about very briefly before, which is what is already legal um, or what is not um, included in this legislation. So, for example, it is legal to turn off life support or to refuse treatment at the end of life or to have sufficient morphine or pain relief to to relieve pain at the end of life. And these are all things that are very distinct from euthanasia or assisted suicide. Um, and so what the End of Life Choice Act allows or introduces is the ability for medical practitioners or nurse practitioners to intentionally end the life of someone who fits within specific criteria. The distinction when we talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide, the two things are distinct. So euthanasia is when someone is administered a particular medication or lethal dose, and that's normally uh, via an injection. So that's when a doctor or a nurse practitioner actually delivers it for the person and the person's like lying there on the bed or something? Yes, exactly. And assisted suicide is self-administered. So that means that it's often through prescription drugs, so some tablets perhaps that someone would take. In New Zealand, or in this this act that we're considering, both of those are included. In places like Oregon, only assisted suicide is legal. In places like the Netherlands and Canada, euthanasia is is legal, um, and there's, so there's a bit of a mix around the world, but what we're looking at in New Zealand is both. In section four, under part one, it says assisted dying in relation to a person means the administration by an attending medical practitioner or an attending nurse practitioner of medication to the person to relieve the person's suffering by hastening death or the self-administration by the person of medication to relieve their suffering by hastening death. So that's taking it yourself, like you said. The big one, just coming back to something that Danielle said earlier as part of this, there's quite a few people who, when they hear about it's totally legal for people to have the choice to refuse treatment or to um, decide to turn off life support um, so that they die a natural death that they're already going to die, but also that there's palliative care available where people can have pain relief uh, that is kind of enough for their pain. But then you get into this uh, question that people often ask, which is, hey, euthanasia, aren't doctors already doing this already? Like, Isn't there, you know, giving that little bit of morphine to make sure that the person kind of snuffs it and doesn't have to deal with the next sort of few days of pain that they were going to have to do? Um, and Stephen, I just wanted to specifically ask you, for people who are wondering, if doctors are already doing this, why shouldn't we legalize it and make it legit rather than putting doctors at risk? What's the deal with that? It's a really common area of confusion, and it's not only a confusion among lay people, it's a confusion among doctors and nurses as well. Danielle, when she was listing the, uh, it is perfectly legal, she was talking about to have treatment withdrawn, to refuse treatment, and to have medications to relief of pain and suffering, even when uh, the consequences of that decision may shorten life. She was quoting legal principles, but those are also the ethical principles of the medical profession. So it is perfectly ethical for us to give morphine to patients near the end of life. But that is not euthanasia, uh, and that is not assisted suicide, and that's a common misperception. An example, in a study done of uh, GPs here in New Zealand, of a little over 600 GPs, about 350 of them or so said that they had been involved in end-of-life decisions. One of the questions was then asked, have you 
participated? Have you done euthanasia? And 16 doctors in this anonymous survey said, yes, they've, they've euthanized a patient. And the next pa question was, um, who administered the final medication? And 15 of those 16 doctors said it was a nurse. And the last question was, how much do you think you shortened their life by your actions? And 15 out of 16 said less than 24 hours. The administration of morphine within 24 hours of someone dying um, is, is fairly common. And you'll hear many people tell the stories of, you know, grandma was in hospital, she wasn't doing, for, for days she wasn't doing very well, and then one day the doctor came along and increased the morphine and she passed away within an hour. The morphine killed her, basically. Um, morphine is not a, a drug of euthanasia. Morphine uh, comes from a poppy plant. It's a type of opium. Heroin comes from the same thing. Um, and so it's not, morphine can suppress the breathing. People given large doses of morphine uh, can lower their breathing rate. But even the fight to survival with your breathing response usually overcomes that. So I once had a patient that was on 4,000 milligrams twice a day of morphine and was still perfectly active and playing chess and absolutely fine. So morphine does not end your life. But the reason why if you are in your final hours of dying and someone gives you morphine, it relieves your body's fight or flight response that might be just absolutely screaming fight or flight to keep you alive because you are so unwell. And when you're given morphine, morphine opens up the blood vessels in your body, lowers your blood pressure, relaxes that sympathetic nervous system trying to keep you alive. And so it is not uncommon if you're right in the final moments that giving morphine might shorten that by a few hours. But that's not what we're talking about in this bill. What we're talking about in this bill is a doctor would come uh, and see you and you would have an expected death within six months and they would book a time and come and see you and then they would inject a medication uh, in which you would die on the end of the needle most of the time or would prescribe you a medicine that they would pick, the doctor would pick, or a nurse practitioner would pick up from the pharmacy, would bring to your house, would pour it into a, a drink, you, it would have to stay with you while you drank the drink and passed away, and then it's supposed to return the medication back to the pharmacy, unused medication, or if you decided at the last moment not to take it, to return the whole medication to the pharmacy. The point is it stays in the eyesight of the doc practitioner at all times. And, and the reason you say um, most of the time would be euthanasia I'm assuming as you're looking at the, considering the international uh, experience which is when uh, both options of euthanasia and assisted suicide are there most people will choose euthanasia as that that option as opposed to assisted suicide it's also a little bit more than that in that uh, when you have the drink, unfortunately, some people will vomit up the drink again. Um, and so there were 41 cases or something in Oregon of where someone took the medication and unfortunately woke up again uh, later. Um, and then the injection by the euthanasia sometimes can also go wrong if the intravenous isn't in the right, quite in the right place. Medication goes interstitial, uh, not enough medication. Um, so there are times when uh, then it's not absolutely effective. And I think the word medication can be a bit confusing because if it's not morphine, um, what, what are we talking about? 
So it's usually, I mean, especially in the injection, it's usually a combination of barbiturates, uh, which is a very heavy sleeping pill, um, and a muscle relaxant, just like when you have an anesthetic, absolutely paralyzes all your muscles, including your breathing muscles, um, and sometimes a high dose of potassium to try and stop your heart as well. Um, so it's a combination of those medications. Moving on from the, the section of all the definitions to part one, section five, which is kind of where the meaty stuff starts. This part outlines who will be eligible for assisted dying under the act and under what conditions and basically i'm just going to read the section and then we'll get some get some of your sort of translation or some of your reactions to the words and how they're used so it says in this act a person who is eligible for assisted dying or eligible person means a a person who is aged 18 years or over b is a person who has new zealand citizenship as provided in the citizenship act 1977 or a permanent resident C, who suffers from a terminal illness that is likely to end the person's life within six months, and D, is in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability, and E, experiences unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tolerable, and F, is competent to make an informed decision about assisted dying. That, it sounds tight, right? Like, it sounds it, it sounds very limited, and, and I think, especially given that fact that after the select committee process, um, David Seymour, he introduced um, a series of amendments, one yes. of which was to take away, uh, which was and that was then accepted and, and, and voted in um, to remove that whole section, which would have allowed people who had a grievous and irremediable condition, which could be disability, could be motor neuron disease, could be you know, and, and so now it is just terminal illness with six months to live. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people were um, quite pleased to see that particular clause be removed and it certainly tightens up the legislation somewhat but even then when you read that criteria as much as it sounds strict and limiting in reality when it leaves the page it becomes a lot messier Um, so terms like irreversible decline or unbearable suffering these are rather subjective Um, I'd be interested Stephen in how how you would find it to interpreting those kinds of that kind of terminology when you've got a patient in front of you and then you have another one how, how does it look different from one patient to another my understanding is that they're not as straightforward as it, we we might like to think well especially when you've got a patient who as you say is like i want this i want it now um, please give it to me and i definitely fit within these criteria i'm i am irreversibly declining how do you as a doctor take the emotion out of it and go no, this is the objective, these are the objective ways I'm going to interpret that criteria. Sure, and this is where we get into the huge murky area of this. I mean, the reason why this legislation is written in the way it is comes back to my first comments about trying to define rational versus irrational, trying to get it as tight as possible so that we allow what who society feels is perfectly reasonable but don't allow people who society feels is unreasonable and it's interesting when we look at this issue as well i mean i could most people i think to be honest when i said at the beginning that emotion is what leads people in this discussion if i was having to name that emotion i would guess for most people it's fear it's it's fear of dying it's fear of pain it's it's fear of end of life it's fear of loss of control so fear is is driving a lot of that emotion and for many um they're favoring this bill and this legislation because in their mind they're thinking about that they've been diagnosed with a, a metastatic malignancy and severe pain that can't be controlled uh, they're suffering miserably um, and uh, they want the right to to end their life 
Um, and it's interesting when you look overseas at the jurisdictions, about 3% of people request euthanasia for intractable pain. In fact, burden to others makes up 48% of the reason why people will ask for assisted dying. Um, and so the scenario that many of us are thinking about is actually quite rare. Good, modern palliative care can control pain and symptoms quite well in the vast majority of patients. And, that, and that's a slight aside, by the way. Um, it's when the original bill in the world in the Netherlands came out, the bill was originally suggested as a joint bill um, that would guarantee palliative care funding and allow for assisted dying. And the, the guarantee of palliative care funding in the Netherlands was taken out of the bill. Um, and we have the same issue here in New Zealand. Um, for example, our, our major hospices in New Zealand, 50% um, of their funding comes from the government. The remaining 50% of their funding comes from uh, donations, volunteer work, and so on. And some people have argued that it's quite inappropriate, really, to under-resource good modern palliative care services and then have a conversation about it end of life because good modern palliative care services are extremely effective the vast majority of the time. It's been really interesting to look at the legislation overseas because there are a couple of things that happen. One of those is that the boundaries around where the legislation falls um, or who is eligible and who is not, that shifts. Um, so in the Netherlands, for example, they are talking about uh, allowing euthanasia for people who are tired of life, so 65 years and older and, and, and don't have a terminal illness or any illness but are, are ready to die. Or in Belgium where they removed the criteria of age, so children of any age can be assisted to die. Or in Canada, where um, most recently this year they've been discussing um, removing the criteria of whether some, um, someone's death is reasonably foreseeable. Uh, so it's, it's removing that kind of that timeline, that prognosis around whether someone's going to die or not. As soon as you, you try and draw these boundaries, it, it becomes... Uh, really difficult and there's this quote from a, a judge in the UK or a retired judge actually I think it's brilliant I'm just going to read it out she says laws like nation states are more secure when their boundaries rest on natural frontiers the law that we have rests on just such a natural frontier it rests on the principle that involving ourselves in deliberately bringing about the death of others for whatever reason is unacceptable behavior to create exceptions based on arbitrary criteria, such as a terminal illness or mental capacity, is to create lines in the sand easily crossed and hard to defend. The law is there to protect us. We tinker with it at our peril. Um, so I think it's really interesting to, to keep in mind when we talk about the legislation. We're not, we're not just talking about now. We're talking about, well, what will this look like in future? Um, and I know people... Uh, get hesitant about that, but I actually think it is, is worth considering. So if you are picturing someone near the end of life, uh, they look like they have a few days to live, they're in intractable pain. I think there's many people in society that might think that's an example where we should probably agree to this. Other people, though, are thinking about things like dementia. Um, and they're thinking of their demented grandmother or grandfather or something, and they don't want to be like that. Well, of course, that's going to be completely excluded in this bill uh, because you must be competent to make your own decision. Other people are thinking about things like Parkinson's disease or motor neuron disease and so on, where arguably it doesn't have a lifespan of less than six months. Um, and so 
what we've seen overseas, and Canada is a really nice um, example because Canada passed the legislation in 2016, uh, and what's happened is rapidly they've had multiple court challenges against these by um, the, some people are arguing it's too far, we never should have agreed. Other people are going to court and saying it's not far enough, dementia should be allowed, um, under the age of 18 should be allowed in special circumstances. Um, we're starting to make advanced directives should be allowed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's what happens when you try to write a bill that is so perfect that it gets the difference between rational and irrational. And some would argue it, it, you can't. It is not black and white. Every single patient that comes to you is going to be an individual patient with individual circumstances. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing that um, part of this criteria that is worth talking about a bit more is that idea of prognosis. Um, so in the in the legislation, it says that a person must have six months to, or have a terminal illness and likely to die within six months. And and prognosis, from what I understand, I'm not a medical doctor, so Stephen, you'll be able to speak to this better than I will. From what the research says, it's really difficult um, determining w when someone is likely to die. So when you're in your final days and hours, it, it's more accurate but when you're weeks and months out it, it's, it's there's a lot of guesswork involved right and so people talk about the art of the prognosis and in fact actually diagnosis itself can be incorrect sometimes so there was research that said about five percent of deaths in a post-mortem study the diagnosis had been incorrect out of a hospital so when you have those, that kind of reality going on and then you are telling a patient that they have perhaps four months to live um, and they're making plans that actually I want to be assisted to die, that that might be completely incorrect. They they may have years of life ahead of them and not, not realise that. Yeah, that's very true, Daniel. I mean, um, the, the classic example, again, from the Oregon example, is you're supposed to have six months to live and someone took their medication 1,141 days later. And uh, prognosis is very, very difficult for us, as is diagnosis. The interesting thing with through almost probably 15 years now, maybe uh, approximately, um, New Zealand has had something called the Advanced Care Planning Program going on within primary care and within New Zealand hospitals. And essentially what the Advanced Care Planning Program is doing is encourages us, us as doctors and nurses uh, uh, to ask ourselves when we see a patient, would we be surprised if this patient died in the next 12 months? And if when we answer that question in our mind, we think no, then we're supposed to prompt a begin a conversation with that patient about their wishes in death and how they would like to go and to sort of have allow those conversations and there's a whole training program about how that's done and obviously it's it can be very difficult um, but the research in developing the advanced care planning program has discovered that um, quite commonly we actually underestimate um, doctors think they're going to live longer than they actually do in some cases um, and in other cases we overestimate by by a long shot um, and similarly things like heart failure or severe COPD emphysema and there's a lot of people with those conditions where you know the more t the statistics would tell you they have an average survival of six to eight months um, and yet we admit them over and over and over for five years so again we're not very good at prognosis uh, as you say the line in part e experiences unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tolerable how as a medical professional 
how would you make that call? It's not up to us to make that call. I mean, this is something of our professionalism. Again, I'm faced with this every single day where I work in the hospital. Patients don't necessarily make the decision um, that you think is a logical decision, but they have full right to make a dumb decision in my mind, let's say, but if they're competent to do so. Obviously, I can't give you too many examples, but you know, we see uh, patients coming to hospital who have decided to um, stop eating and only drink alcohol for three straight months. And then they come into hospital unwell. And they're, they're competent to make that decision, but we may disagree with that decision, but we cannot and will not pass judgment upon them. If you're competent to make the decision, you decide whether it's unbearable suffering or bearable suffering. The issue comes into, I mean, some people have said, what about doctors who object to this? They don't have to be involved. Um, David Seymour has said that himself. In fact, he's specifically written in that there's no obligation upon me as a doctor, if I disagree with it, um, to participate. And he's protected me in that way, he says in the wording of it. But I still have to, A, make the diagnosis. B, I have to make the prognosis. C, I have to decide whether you are sound, sound, competent to make your decision. And D, I have to refer you on to someone else who, if you, if I feel I don't want to be involved, I have to refer you on to someone else. So, yes, I'm not actively involved, but yes, I am. Um, it's pretty hard to keep me out if it's my patient who turns to me and says, I'd like to end my life. And I'm looking at the patient and I think, well, you've only got a, a bruised toe or something. I disagree with your decision, um, but I can't judge you. It's your choice. The other thing that I just bring up with this section is the is point D in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical in physical capability, and this is a point that uh, several people in the disability community have seized upon as as kind of going well yes you've taken out that um, and in the next section it says the person who is not a person who is eligible for all of this is that basically they they can't just have a disability of any kind basically they're saying that you know there's many people for whom they have a disability that needs constant medical attention and if they chose which is their right to forego that medical attention they would quickly become terminal within six months from your experience is that a legitimate concern is that something that in terms of the advanced state of irreversible decline it does seem that if someone was to sort of forego their treat their normal treatments um, they could fall into the category yeah, I'm not so sure. I mean, it is a gray area, again, because it comes in the patient has the right to refuse treatment. So similarly, patients can refuse to eat. And as such, they will irreversibly decline. Our role, therefore, though, would be just to deem competence. And they are, if they are competent to make that decision, then that's all right. That's their decision to make. Um, I, I think the bigger issue in, hidden in the, that sentence is the permanence versus transient nature of some of those symptoms. You know, for example, it's not uncommon after someone has had a stroke uh, and they're um, disabled uh, for the first time. Depression, very, very common for the first one to three months uh, after a stroke. Uh, bypass surgery, a third of people who have bypass surgery will experience significant depression uh, within six months after bypass surgery, etc. Um, in palliative in hospice units, about a third of people in a hospice unit will express a wish to die, uh, but the number of people who would actually act on that is extremely small. Um, so as part of the grieving post process, as part of the adjustment process, it is very, very common um, for people to uh, feel hopeless um, and as such express a wish to die. Um, but sometimes with time, 
sometimes with change in circumstances, sometimes with acceptance, um, that can change. And I think that's what the people in the disability community have often said, you know, someone who is 23 years old and becomes a paraplegic uh, and is living their life in a wheelchair, probably if you'd asked them for the first few years, many of them would have wanted to end their life. But fast forward five or 10 years and many of them are, are living a really high quality life that is valuable to them and they would want to go back to these people and say it gets better, it gets better. Um, but this takes the option away from them. And that depression is something that we talk about doctors finding difficult to uh, diagnose in, in a terminal patient, right? Because there's so much going on. It's difficult to figure out if someone actually is depressed or has a competent and rational and uh, just a, a reasonable decision. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's what they're making to be assisted to die. I've read somewhere that that some doctors would, even if they did see depression in a terminal patient, would sometimes see that as an understandable depression because the person is at the end of their life. And so I can see that that's, that's a really messy and, and difficult area as a medical practitioner to, to negotiate, um, especially if you have doctors who, who aren't trained psychiatrists. You know, this is not their area of expertise. And it takes real training to to understand that to be able to diagnose it or detect it and then figure out how to help someone with that and, and added on to that many patients with cancer might have brain metastasis or many patients with cancer may be on morphine or high dose analgesic medications which is making them a little bit confused and so on uh, and i think that's to be honest, that what we call capacity assessment is probably one of the most difficult areas that is going to face doctors in this issue. And there's textbooks written on the ability to define capacity. Um, of course, most of us have watched uh, courtroom dramas um, where psychiatrists come along and try to say, was he competent or not competent when he made that crime? And you see the difficulties played out on television. Well, those difficulties are real. And again, in my line of work in the hospital, I'm regularly making decisions on whether someone is competent to live on their own or whether they need to go into a rest home uh, or a private hospital. Um, and those decisions are extremely gray. Uh, for example, a um, 69-year-old woman who's picked up uh, totally unkempt, her house is a complete mess, she's feeding 12 to 15 cats, she's drinking nothing but alcohol, she hasn't had food um, in weeks kind of thing. Um, we say she's now not capable of taking care of herself. She comes in, she knows the date, the time, the year, her bank account number, where the hospital is, the names of her kids, um, and looks you straight in the eye and says, no, I'm fine, thank you very much. Now, is she or is she not capable of making her own decisions and therefore can she live on her own or does she go into a rest home? These are the kind of decisions we face every day. The difficulty is if we get it wrong for going into a rest home, that's okay. She can always come out. Um, if we get it wrong in this decision, uh, very, very difficult. And this what you, it's what's written in this legislation and it says uh, if the two, do two doctors must sign them off as competent, and if those two doctors don't agree, then a psychiatrist has to get involved. And again, looks good on paper. In reality, the vast majority of two-doctor systems overseas, the second doctor just really rubber stamps, often doesn't even meet. Um, what happens overseas is the number of doctors that wishing to participate in this narrows down. Um, and so the pool of doctors available becomes quite small, actually. So you start to get your connections, you know who to go to, and that person has their second 
calendar that always seconds them kind of thing. And so what so looks good on paper doesn't necessarily occur. Then if a, then if a psychiatrist is called in to make a capacity assessment, um, how are you going to get that capacity assessment done? In the public system, uh, we have huge uh, waiting lists on mental health deficiencies in the mental health system, or you'll have to pay for a private psychiatrist's opinion, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, again, what looks good on paper and seems easy and straightforward and trying to protect us, in reality, can open up a whole can of worms too. And you look at Oregon where this is legal and in the la- in 2019, I was just looking at the, the data, um, in 2019, only one person was referred to a psychiatrist out of 188 people who were assisted to die. Mm-hmm. Um, my expectation is that more people might, might have needed or might have been struggling with depression during that that time we'll never know essentially um the second opinion is in part two section 14 and it basically says that the attending medical practitioner if they think that someone is this person's asked me for euthanasia i think that it's fine for them they, they fit the criteria they then have to ask the skins group can you give a short explanation of skins an oversight group part of the ministry of health that reviews all applications follows all the paperwork and must have uh, oversight of all cases so the any medical practitioner must A, ask the SKINS group for the name and contact details of an independent medical practitioner, and B, ask that independent medical practitioner for their opinion on whether the person requesting the option of receiving assisted dying is a person who is eligible for assisted dying, so this is the second second opinion. That independent medical practitioner must read the medical files, they must examine the person, and they must reach the opinion that the person either they are eligible, they are not a person who's eligible, or the person would be a person who is eligible for assisted dying if it were established under section 15, which is the one that talks about a psychiatrist, if the psychiatrist determined that person was competent. This, again, is one of those things, this doctor sitting in in his or her office uh, receives this calmly, oh yeah, cool, I'll I'll send an email to SCANS. SCANS will get back to me with the name of an independent practitioner that I don't necessarily know, so that there's sort of a balanced view on this. And then I will just email that person, they'll make a time to see this person, the, the the person who's requesting assisted suicide, and complete all the paperwork. You you talked about sort of overseas. You you get these sort of doctors who operate in concert with one another, where one doctor will, and then you sort of go down the hall. That's my second doctor. You know, she'll sign you off. How likely is it in practice that that what's being described here is a sort of very removed uh, situation where you have to contact a third party, which then puts you in touch with sort of an independent professional who can then do a consultation with the person who's asking will actually happen. Well, sure. And I think this is an example of, um, I mean, the legislators are truly trying their best in writing this. And I think this is, you know, this is an example where they have really tried to think it through and make it the safest that we possibly can. Um, I commend them for that on working through this. But on the other hand, there could be a positive spinoff on this. I mean, so, uh, and the positive spinoff would be the time delay that will be inherent into this process because the previous legislation and most legislation requests a time delay to try and remove that fact that it's a spontaneous or a decision. You used to have 15 days and I think other legislation overseas had said you must make two requests four weeks apart and so on. So I think without, this time they haven't written in the time delay but I think these sorts of things may may introduce a time delay which might be a good thing as a surrogate basically just to ensure but the problem is, you know, as I say, I have difficulty making capacity assessments in the hospital for patients that I've sort of seen every day for 10 days kind of thing. How well could a second doctor in a one-hour appointment or a half-an-hour appointment um, at that one moment in time 
get your full history. How, how, how consistent has this view been? And in the, in the hospital, we almost always talk to family, uh, Fanau, and we try to get a whole story about this. And often, for example, if the patient can't speak, it is the family and the Fanau that are speaking on their behalf. Uh, and we ask them, you know, over the last 10, 20 years, what has mom or dad, what has dad said about this sort of thing, if this would ever occur? And you try to get a really good feel. Is that possible in a second consultation quite quickly. Um, so I, I think there will be fish hooks, but I, I, I do commend the legislators in trying to write this one quite well. Part two of the Act talks about assisted dying, and part two, section eight, um, talks about conscientious objection. The first part of it says, a health practitioner is not under any obligation to assist any person who wishes to exercise the option of receiving assisted dying under this Act if the health practitioner has a conscientious objection to providing that assistance to the person. Stephen, what do medical practitioners actually think? I mean, on the whole, how likely are we to get people conscientiously objecting to the practice or participating in the practice? Overseas jurisdictions are probably pretty similar to New Zealand uh, when surveys have been done. Um, roughly about two-thirds of doctors are opposed in principle, about one-third are comfortable in principle. Um, but in Canada, for example, uh, despite being two-thirds uh, opposed in principle, 30% approving, uh, in the end only 6% of doctors participate in the actual act and willing to participate. Um, so I think it would likely be the same here. Interestingly, on those surveys, when they've looked at doctors, um, they did a survey of which you saw medical students' results, junior doctor hospital results, practicing doctors' results and palliative care doctor results. And it was quite interesting looking at the data. The more experienced you were in medicine, the more you were against this legislation in principle, uh, basically, between the two. I think you will have a, f a sum that may conscientiously object, but it will still be our duty to do the best by the patient, and therefore we will still need to ensure that we have given the correct diagnosis to the patient, the prognosis to the patient, and the capacity assessment, and referred them on to someone uh, who would be involved. Involved. So I think the public uh, could rest assured that if this legislation went through, the medical profession would continue to serve them as such. It was really interesting as the bill was going through Parliament and during the phase where it was being amended that Louisa War, one of the MPs, uh, put forward an amendment that was not passed, uh, but she was hoping that this might go through the courts so that the family court, for example, would have to decide whether or not someone was eligible rather than doctors. So removing as much as possible doctors from the situation. Oh, very much so. And I think there are some doctors that are keen on the idea. I mean, at the moment, it is the courts uh, that decide our rights in society following legislation. Um, and I think there are some doctors that would be quite comfortable with something like as big as this to continue to be decided by our judicial system, which is set up to make these kind of big decisions rather than us making it a one by one. If I can just, I'll, I'll blur the issues for a few moments and I'll just talk about a few other practical little things. Um, for example, uh, you're talking about conscientious objection. Um, if the medical schools are going to teach uh, how to assist someone in dying or how to do the euthanasia, basically, obviously as a student I'll be able to conscientiously object if I don't want to participate, which means the medical schools will not be able to examine on whether you've learnt the material or not which means the regulator will not be able to regulate whether you're qualified or not to actually do the procedure. So what will happen if a doctor tries to do assisted su uh, suicide or euthanasia and makes a mistake? 
Um, so first of all, will that be an ACC claim then? Um, because it will be a treatment injury because they were provided care by a medical practitioner that went wrong. So possibly they could put in an ACC claim. Um, is the doctor accountable to the medical council uh, for their conduct of practice if the patient then can, uh, complains against the doctor? If a doctor refuses to participate and the patient is unhappy with the way the doctor refused, can that doctor, uh, can that patient uh, report them to the Health and Disability Commissioner? And then will the doctor be accountable for that decision if they were never trained? Um, are the sorts of issues that bounce up and, and Canada is bubbling to the surface at the moment in the medical schools and so on as well? Moving through the document down to section 11 under part 2, it talks about the request being made that the person who wishes to exercise the option of receiving assisted dying they must inform the attending medical practitioner of their wish and it talks about what the medical practitioner has to do and basically there's a few of these that I think that um, are quite you know just interesting to look at and I'm just going to read through them and if you have anything to say just uh, just chime on in so the att attending medical practitioner once uh, they've, they've heard this from the person they have to give the person the following information one the prognosis for the person's terminal illness two the irreversible nature of assisted dying and three, they have to tell them about the anticipated impacts of assisted dying and personally communicate by any means uh, with the person about the person's wish at intervals determined by the progress of the person's terminal illness and ensure the person understands their other options for end-of-life care and ensure the person knows that they can decide at any time before the administration of the medication not to receive the medication and encourage the person to discuss their wish with others such as family, friends and counsellors and ensure that the person knows they are not obliged to discuss their wish with anyone and ensure the person has that opportunity to discuss their wish with those whom they choose and do their best to ensure that the person expresses their wish free from pressure from any other person by one, conferring with other health practitioners who are in regular contact with the person and two, conferring with members of the person's family approved by the person and record the actions they have taken to comply with paragraphs A to H in the first part of the approved form. To be honest, from the medical profession, those are a lot of words, but we just um, put them, summarize them into two words, which we're very comfortable with, and that's informed consent. Um, and so I, I don't think the medical profession would disagree uh, with any of that as such. Um, the previous form of this legislation actually mandated, though, and, and as such, that as soon as the patient uh, requested this, um, we essentially had to down tools and have this whole conversation. We weren't allowed to even sort of finish the sentence, but I was going to give you some antibiotics or something. I mean, it, it needed to be uh, fully open. Um, but apart from that, that's just standard informed consent. Doctors should never be telling a patient what to do. Um, they should be educating the patient so that it's shared decision making. Uh, and this is no different. And they're just trying to outline all the kind of information that should be laid out. But as you know, that comes under uh, our um, health and disability legislation, and therefore, if a patient wanted to put a complaint against the doctor for one of those A to H was missing, um, that would be a complaint to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I, I mean, I completely agree with you, Stephen. I do think it's worth noting that these uh, points hi it highlights a few issues um, that I see anyway in the legislation. So, for example, although this is not an issue, it asks that um, the person understands their other options for end-of-life care and we spoke earlier about palliative care and hospice care and how important that is and powerful that can be for um, looking after someone well at the end of their life 
or below that it says that the person knows that they can decide at any time before the administration of the medication not to receive the medication. So essentially if someone has a change of heart. What's really interesting is is how difficult it is or, or the, the power imbalance that exists between a patient and a doctor. As soon as you start to talk about these kinds of issues and I realise that um, the doctor cannot bring up the idea of assisted death that must be from the patient's impetus um, but even then the as soon as the conversation begins there is a power imbalance and because the the doctor knows so much more about medical issues than the patient does right I go to my doctor and ask them questions because I don't understand what's going on uh, and so they're gonna I, I trust that they're going to help me out and that's really important that we have that trust and that that we have people who do know a lot more about me than um, and about medicine um, and how to care for people well at the end of their life but that means that when you're having this kind of conversation that the even the suggestion that euthanasia or assisted suicide is a good idea can actually be quite powerful when it's coming from a doctor and then the next thing is that, that we talk about is that they encourage the person to discuss their wish with others such as family and the reason that the word there is encourage rather than ensure is because we recognize that actually elder abuse is a really big problem in this country and we want to avoid that as much as possible but this I, I don't see how this can the, the these words can um, restrict any abuse from from happening. Now, when I talk about abuse here, I'm talking about people being pressured, as the the legislation goes to goes on to discuss that someone the doctor must do their best to ensure that the person expresses their wish free from any pressure that is really difficult to do particularly if as we were talking about before you don't have a long-term relationship with your patient so in Oregon for example quite regularly and Washington um, quite regularly the the data says that a patient would have about a week's worth of relationship with their doctor that's not the kind of long-term relationship where you you might know that um, there are financial issues in the family or there are pressures because the the mother is needing to care for for other the other day-to-day life of the family or or sometimes pressure can be implicit as opposed to explicit so for example the patient might think well actually I don't want to put to be a bother to my daughter who's now having to look after me at the end of my life and the daughter might not think it's a bother at all but but perhaps the 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 patient or the uh, the mother thinks oh well I don't want to be a bother and so maybe euthanasia is a good option and they might not otherwise have chosen that I mean I, I did want to ask you Stephen just on on the matter of coercion because it is it seems I mean for me having not really been around medicine and the practice of it it seems really abstract right like I mean I can imagine that there'd be some some horrible situations coming in and out of the doors of of medical practices you probably would have seen all kinds of life um, and so how when it, when it comes to detecting pressure and, and you know it says the act wants to say you know you should confer with other health practitioners who are in regular contact with the person um, and confer with members of the person's family um, how well will people be able to what will medical practitioners who are making these kinds of decisions actually be able to detect that kind of coercion 
Well, I work um, in a major teaching hospital in uh, New Zealand in a medical department, general medicine department. Our average age that we admit is approximately 83. Um, and so every single day of my career, I'm dealing with um, elderly people and some very ill people. Um, and as I say, many of those patients are looking at going into a rest home or a private hospital, etc. And so this is my day-to-day -day job of what I do. And I've been doing it in New Zealand since 1991. So I've got a bit of experience in the hospital and dealing with families and I would have to say that at least weekly I try to teach the junior doctors all the time that for us it's a job we go through and uh, do our ward rounds we just go into the hospital it's just Monday it's just Tuesday or whatever it is it's just a, it's, we go in and it's just our job but I try to remind the junior doctors that for most patients in hospital, this is the moment they were in hospital. And for their entire family, this is the moment mum was in hospital. Remember when mum was admitted to hospital a few years ago and so on? This is one of life's major events from the patient's point of view. And so they're major moments in someone's life. And, you know, unfortunately, that also attracts some major dramas, some major family issues. Uh, but the problem with families as well and what can happen, it can tear families apart, um, those that will support a decision and those that don't support the decision, the person who doesn't support the decision feeling abandoned by the person who, you know, has made the decision, etc. Um, and so there's a lot of family dynamics built around this. So it isn't actually an individual decision even uh, often as well. Yeah, so it, I think as we've discussed, it's, it's the whole thing is pretty complex. <laughs> and I think the thing that um, really strikes me about the choice argument is that not only would this legislation allow people to make the choice they already would have made, um, make the choice that, as Lucretia Seals, you know, she said, I want this choice. This is a choice that even in, the, in, in, a, in a situation, in a context where I'm not allowed to make this choice, I want to make that choice. What strikes me about this legislation is it's not just giving the opportunity for people to make that choice who already wanted it, it's actually now creating a new paradigm. It's creating a new choice um, that every person who fits the criteria now suddenly has to go, well, actually, should I? Is this something I should consider? Because now I know this is allowed in our society. Um, and so there's this idea that there is this subset of people in our society who already want this, who faced with a certain number of um, situations, a certain, you know, a certain group of circumstances in their life, they would want that for themselves. But this law doesn't just open up the choice for those people. It actually creates a paradigm in which that's allowable for everyone uh, who fits those criteria. And all of a sudden, you've got people sitting and laying in their hospital beds thinking, is this the moment I should make a choice? Is this the moment that, I, oh, is this, this is what assisted suicide is for, right? This is why they made it legal. And I just think that we don't really reckon with that. We don't reckon with the fact that people's choices um, are affected by what's allowed in society and are affected by what is, is described to be normal through the actions of other people. So, you know, oh, my neighbor chose assisted suicide. Maybe that's something I should do. Well, I think a lot of what you said is backed up by the statistics. I mean, I understand something almost 5% in the Netherlands now of deaths uh, occur through assisted dying. And in Canada, they're commenting on how rapidly in 2016 until now, the percentage of deaths, I think they're up to 2.9, almost 3% of deaths in Canada now through assisted dying. So you're right. There is sort of a, one could argue that means there's been an unmet need un released um, or it's established a new acceptable 
norm um, to request dying. I graduated medical school in 1986. I first started seeing patients in 1984. And if I think back in my entire career, I can probably only think of one patient in that entire career in which I think most of us caring for the patient would have understood a decision like this if they were requesting it. Don't get me wrong, I mean, obviously, and I've never, um, well, I've never consistently being asked by a patient to end their life. I fairly regularly will get a, a cry for help comment, um, but um, most of the time that's not a sustained request. And I can meet the need even when they do make those comments, so I just want to end it all. There's a message in that when they say that to you. And if you explore, you can identify what their need is. And often it's just love and care um, and support. And that's a number that's consistent with palliative care doctors that I've spoken to. Um, one from the UK, for example, talks about in the 12,000 death beds that she sat by, she could think of about 12 cases where she thought that, that actually maybe euthanasia would be a helpful option um, and spoke to her colleagues and the numbers or the percentage was about the same. Um, so, so you're not alone in those kinds of numbers. And what Danielle was talking about and the coercion being implicit versus explicit. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but rest homes cost about fifty dollars to $60,000 a year, maybe. And you might have a family member who says, that's my inheritance. Mom, you don't want to go into a rest home. You don't want to live like this. Or even just, just they don't want to see their parents suffering. Um, and so they lean towards it. Whereas the person experiencing the suffering left to their own may not make their own decision. Or might not see it as suffering. Or, or might not see it as suffering. Reminds me of a conversation I was just having this morning. The family is sitting around their dying relative and is watching the dying relative um, sometimes scratch their head or grimace. Um, and so they're worried that the patient is suffering. And I just had to explain, no, the pressure has gone up in the brain. That's a very common thing. Once the brain gets irritable, you get that grimacing and kind of scratchy kind of feeling. They're not consciously aware that they are uncomfortable uh, because they're, they're, they're basically in a coma. But to watch it, it looks like they are uncomfortable. So the family thinks they're suffering. On the few patients I've had over those last few 20, 30 years that wake up, no, no, they're, they're in dreamland. They didn't remember any of it. It wasn't suffering to them. Coercion is, I'm going to say, almost impossible to determine. Yeah. Now, that, uh, to be fair, the other flip side of that coin, remember, I'm a hospital specialist. And so when you come into hospital, I'm those, you're right, those final weeks, those final days of your life. Um, general practitioners that may or may not have a lifetime relationship with you uh, of 20 or 25 years, some may be able to make those decisions and feel they know you and they know the family very, very well. Um, unfortunately, by the practice of medicine in New Zealand and worldwide, those long-term continuity of care primary care relationships are also decreasing. A&E clinics, uh, multiple GP practices, employed GPs. I mean, commonest answer I get in Auckland when I'm asked is who your GP is. Well, it's sort of this practice, but um, I sort of have this doctor, but she's only there on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I got a locum on the, you know, uh, the relationships are changing from 30 or 40 years ago. I mean, they, they still exist all over New Zealand, but it's changing. I think it's worth noting that all of these things are in the legislation because we recognise that there is risk to this legislation and we want to reduce the risk of wrongful death, as so deaths that we didn't intend to be eligible under this kind of legislation. But when you look at every piece of legislation around the world, no, none of them have been able to perfectly eliminate the risk of wrongful death because legislation isn't able to do that. It doesn't work that way. Um, so we have to 
recognize that when we pass this kind of legislation that there will be wrongful death and how how much of that are we prepared to have? I agree, Daniel, but I'm not sure wrongful death is the biggest worry that we have. Um, I think the biggest worry we have is the impact on medical care and on palliative care. A story I, I, I give is, you know, if I have a patient on Monday who's vomiting, I'll prescribe drug A. Um, and then on ward round on Tuesday, if they're still vomiting, I'll try drug B. And on Wednesday, if they're still vomiting, I'll try drug C. And on Thursday, if they're still vomiting, I'll scratch my head, I'll check my colleagues, I'll Google. I might even consider medical marijuana or something. Um, I'll do everything I can to try and help that patient. Um, But once you introduce this sort of legislation, it's subtle, um, but somewhere along the line, someone might mention to the patient the alternative. Or and and so the care that we provide as doctors as well um, implicitly can change. And so the aggressive, good palliative care suddenly maybe we won't try those options D, E, and F because we've now got this option come onto the cards. Um, And so it does impact the delivery of care. It also, this is going to be an extreme example, but I I do remember a uh, boss of mine when I was in Canada who was retiring as a uh, kidney specialist. And at his retirement speech, he talked about how the job of nephrology had changed over his time as a doctor. Um, And he said when he started... It's not that we had unlimited resources, but every patient who needed dialysis could get dialysis when he started. Um, And as his career progressed, he started to have to make resource decisions about dialysis. And he felt extremely uncomfortable when a patient walked in the room. He felt that the patient in their eyes was, is this the doctor that's going to help me or is this the doctor that's going to execute me? And I felt I, he was making the decision at times. And he never wanted to be in that situation. I think all doctors want to, to the core of their bones, think that the only purpose they are there is to try and help their patient. Um, end of sentence. Um, and so when you were mentioning about going to the judicial system for an answer there's part of me that kind of likes that answer um how about i'll i as your doctor will do everything in my power to help you get better um if you wish to pursue this other avenue and go to the court and see whether the court will allow you to pursue this other avenue you go ahead you have my blessing entirely i will do everything i can to help you but i'm going to continue to do everything i can till i help you at all times now the flip side of that coin to be fair is there are some uh, doctors who believe that it is an extension of their care i've been caring for the patient for 30 years i know the patient well, I know this is truly and genuinely what they want, and therefore assisting them is an extension of the care that I want to deliver to my patients. So I understand there's two sides of the sentence that I've just said, but it does put us in a difficult situation in the delivery of care. And when we talk about palliative care in New Zealand, I think it's worth noting that we're, I think we're ranked about third in the world for the the kind of um, hospice or palliative care that we can deliver. But the accessibility of that care is quite looks quite different. So, in place in some cities, for example, th- there might be a lot more access to to good hospice or palliative care. But in some more rural rural areas, uh, it, it can be much more difficult. And so, you might have some one patient who has brilliant 
palliative end-of-life care and another who doesn't get any at all. Or you might have um, medical schools, for example, the, the, the amount of training that doctors who do not specialise in palliative care, their, their training in what this looks like or what, how to transition someone into palliative care, it's actually quite limited, from my understanding anyway, um, and needs to increase. Um, we, we need more of that so that doctors who are you know, GPs or um, cancer doctors or dealing with end of life quite regularly so that they know how to deal with that, how to decide when to switch from trying to save life to trying to manage death and manage pain. Um, and these, these are conversations that need to happen, I, I think, before we, we talk about euthanasia. And I think it's a good point about palliative care is an interesting specialty um, because in a way it's the epitome of medicine and as to what doctors should be. And what I mean by that is in my prior example, I was speaking about a patient vomiting and I said how I gave drug A, then drug B, then drug C. What I didn't say is probably the best thing I could have done for my patient is to hold their hand or to put a compress on their forehead or to sit and talk to them and give them time. Um, because fear, when I say people are voting for this legislation, partly it's, it's fear decisions that they're making, patience as well. It's fear that is driving them to request um, what it is, not necessarily the reality. And, and a lot of palliative care physicians will tell you acknowledging that fear um, and recognizing that and some of the magic that can occurs in some of the conversations in people near the end of life, both between doctors and patients, but also between patients and family um, that can occur um, is pretty special. And that's what palliative care are specialists in um, and are, are superb at. And hence the comment about the Netherlands when they first passed the legislation, it was combined with a minimum palliative care funding bill, and, it, and, and I believe that should continue as well. Uh, in fact, I believe we should be having a massive conversation about palliative care funding in New Zealand, step one, and then step two, maybe having this conversation again. But um, it's not what we're facing in the next uh, referendum. So the big thing around that we haven't covered, uh, we've gone through all of these criteria and all these things that doctors have to do um, and, and all, the multiple, all the multiple steps that people have to take. Uh, and the big question is, what happens if a doctor doesn't do that thing? Or what happens if those steps aren't followed? What happens if uh, euthanasia is given or performed wrongly? So part three of the act uh, is, is entitled accountability. And the first section under that is on the skins group. And we talked about skins before. I've gone back to the uh, definitions. The skins, skins means support and consultation for end of life in New Zealand. It says the director general must establish the skins group by appointing to it the number of members that the director general considers appropriate. The director general must appoint members who the director general considers have collectively knowledge and understanding of matters relevant to the functions of the skins group. And the functions are to make and maintain a list of medical practitioners who are willing to act for the purposes of this act as the replacement medical practitioners for people who don't want to be a part of it and also the independent second medical practitioners and b they have to provide a name and contact details from the list maintained under this when the person either conscientiously objects 
or asks for a second medical practitioner and then they have to make and maintain a list of health practitioners who are willing to act as psychiatrists for this for that third party and basically to make and maintain a list of pharmacists who are willing to dispense the medication and in relation to the administration of medication under section 20 they have to prepare standards of care to advise on the required medical and legal procedures and to provide practical assistance if assistance is required. Um, so that's basically the SCENS group, which is kind of big an information body that's there to kind of point people in the right direction to provide the right people. And then the Minister of Health must appoint an end-of-life review committee consisting of a medical ethicist and two health practitioners, one of whom must be a medical practitioner who practices in the area of end-of-life care. They have the following functions, which is to consider reports sent to it um, under Section 21, which is assisted death reports and to report to the registrar whether it considers that the information contained in an assisted death report shows satisfactory compliance with the requirements of this act, and to direct the registrar to follow up on any information contained in an assisted death report that the review committee considers does not show satisfactory compliance with the requirements of this act. So basically there's going to be a review committee that reviews all of the death reports um, that are sent to it, and basically go, hey, does this fulfill all, all the factors? Do you think that's satisfactory? It's the best that you can do in setting up legislation, very similar to the Netherlands. Um, but unfortunately, in the Netherlands, quite quickly, only 71% of the medications were returned to the pharmacy, even though the law says that you must give the medication to the patient and then return the remains to the pharmacy. Um, only 71% actually get removed. Over time, that kind of slips a little bit. Um, the other thing is you're going to be reviewing the notes. Um, so you're not really going to be able to review capacity through the notes. You're not going to be able to review coercion through the notes. You're not. Because who's making those notes? Exactly. Well, and so, and you didn't meet with the patient or anything. You're just going to be reviewing that. Yes, someone said that they had capacity and there was no coercion. So it's the, um, it's the medical professionals who are involved are just, the ones who make the notes. Yeah, you're just going to make you're just going to make sure they tick the box that says there was no coercion and they had capacity. Is all the review committee can do. You can't review the prognosis because you just have to say that yes, the doctor said that the prognosis was less than six months, but there'll be no way to say whether they were right or wrong. So, so it is the absolute best that you can do to keep some kind of register like this but is it perfect once again we get back to can you write the perfect law that will not have unintended consequences and i think you you look at the example of the netherlands and you see that over i think it's 18 years of the legislation being an act um and there has been one prosecution and that person was later acquitted no law is ever followed perfectly and if the legislation had worked as intended then we would have seen many more prosecutions. Um, we've also seen in the Netherlands that uh, members of the committee have changed their minds over time. So Teo Boer is a member or was a member of the, one of the committees and he left the committee and changed his mind. He became an, um, changed his mind from being in favour to of euthanasia to being opposed and realised that the committee was unable to prevent improper euthanasia death. So these kinds of things suggest to me that the review committees, while they might be the best that we have, that they don't work as people might have initially intended. They aren't able to prevent 
real abuse um, under the law. The last section that we'll go over, which is in part four, related matters, uh, under section 39, offences. And it says, a person who is a medical practitioner, nurse practitioner or psychiatrist commits an offence if the medical practitioner, nurse practitioner or psychiatrist willfully fails to comply with any requirement of this act. Uh, and they basically commit an offence if the person without lawful excuse completes or partially completes an approved form for any other person without that person's consent. So if they basically pretend that they were the second medical practitioner or alters or destroys a completed or partially completed approved form without the consent of the person who did it. Uh, and also a person who commits an offence under this section is liable on conviction to either or both of the following A, an imprisonment for a term not exceeding three months or B, a fine not exceeding $10,000. Fundamentally, if someone is participating in the assisted suicide of someone who didn't qualify under the, the criteria for the End of Life Choice Act, and they're found out to have not complied with all of this correctly, is that not aiding and abetting suicide? I, I don't know how it, how the medical practice, I know that within the medical practice there are regulations and criteria for when people behave improperly. The Crimes Act, so just, just for context, the Crimes Act says that if someone does aid or abet a suicide and the person then does not attempt or commit suicide, they could be imprisoned for up to three years. If the person does commit or attempt suicide, then they can be imprisoned for up to 14 years. So it is, it is quite a difference. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that's how this all began. Um, and I understand that Switzerland, uh, I, I could be wrong on this, but my understanding is that most jurisdictions around the world have in their Crimes Act, in their definition of a homicide, the clause that even if the patient asks for it, um, it is still considered homicide. So you can't use a defense to say the patient asked me to kill them. Um, and it, that's currently written into most homicide jurisdictions around the world. And that what this is, is removing that and saying that if they request it, you can assist someone in ending their life. Now my understanding is the difference with Switzerland is they didn't have that first clause in their Homicide Act, so it was just easy to introduce without having to have brand new legislation um, in the whole issue. The idea, though, that I understand what they're trying to get at in this section, and this section is basically if we kill someone without their permission, that's that's murder, that's homicide, and we should be prosecuted in every way, shape, and form. So I understand exactly what it is they're trying to achieve, but once again, when we discuss the gray zone, what are we going to do about the dementia patient? Or let's say I have a patient that comes to me uh, requesting euthanasia. Um, they're moderate dementia. And on our sort of score out of 30, we sort of say they're 17 out of 30 or something. Uh, and they're, so they're not capable of making independent decisions about their living. Uh, and their husband and all their kids and everyone says that, you know, mom really wants to go and she has these illnesses and I agree to sign her off, I would then be held accountable presumably for that and should be held accountable for that. But arguably, it's going to be a difficult position for me to be in, aren't I? Because I'm being asked by the entire family as the representative of this woman that they love on her best wishes. So there's no malintent in me trying to assist the family and, in the, and probably the patient. But the patient doesn't meet the guidelines. Um, and so obviously I have to stick to the letter of the law and I will stick to the letter of the law. But you can imagine there's going to be some gray zones in that one out there where the, the doctor's wanting to help the patient, but it doesn't quite fit the criteria. 
it's certainly not straightforward, is it? No. Uh, similar examples are nowhere near as extreme is what about the person who goes to a doctor and says, um, oh, doctor, can't you make that ACC related, please? And it wasn't ACC related, but you know, I'll get something out of it. There's sort of pressure upon the doctor to do the wrong thing but to try and help their patient get benefits from ACC. It is wrong, but it is for the benefit of the patient. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm still, still wrong, don't get me wrong, but it's, you know, it's what doctors are put in those positions all the time. All right, well, that brings us to the end of, uh, of the Act. There's obviously a lot more text in the Act that we didn't go through, so I do encourage um, everyone listening to, to go and read it. Um, it is wordy, but it is what we're voting on. Just to finish off, I thought I might just ask both of you, we've been talking about your expertise, as you're approaching this vote yourself and talking to people in your life about it, uh, what, you know, what would you say um, to someone who's just like, hey, I, I don't quite know what to do here. I want to be empathetic. I want to do the right thing. How do you make this decision? I mean, again, I go right back to the very beginning of my opening words. This is an emotional decision, and therefore this is a personal decision. Um, what I advise people to do is to educate themselves as much as possible um, about an understanding of it. As I say, say most of the emotion is fear-driven. Uh, most of the fear is uh, is is a uh, the fear isn't going to eventuate, um, and yet there is a fear. So it's it's a disproportionate fear, and so you want to make a, a balanced, informed decision um, rather than an emotional, um, uninformed decision, basically. Um, but as to which way you personally and individually decide to vote on the referendum, it will be an individual and personal decision, and I respect um, both views on this issue. Personally, and I think part of the reason why I get asked to give these talks is I, I started with that spectrum at the beginning of thou shalt not kill to it's absolutely everyone's uh, perspective. I sit um, not on either end of that spectrum in, in that I can probably think of a few examples where I think the vast majority of New Zealanders would think it would be made possibly acceptable. But I personally believe um, it is impossible to write the perfect law that distinguishes the unintended negative consequences to society, uh, to the care of patients, and the difficulties arrived to the benefit of the very, very few that might truly benefit from this. And so my personal uh, feeling is that I, I, I'm against the legislation, um, but I can fully understand everyone has different opinions on it. I'm going to say something kind of similar. I think conversations like this are often framed up as a battle between choice and a version of morality. But in reality, our choices are limited by law all the time. For example, I might want the choice to be able to use methamphetamines but we restrict that choice because we recognize that that would be harmful um, not only to me but the the community and the people around me or I might think that I'm a great driver and it's a safe and sunny day a long straight road and so maybe I can drive a little bit faster but we limit that choice because we recognize that that's not always the case and to be honest I might not be as great a driver as I think I am so the law has to be the same across the, the the circumstances it is a blunt tool and and when we're talking about euthanasia and assisted suicide then legislation is for both those people who are really competent who know their own mind who fit the criteria perfectly who we might think you know what in this situation I think that yeah euthanasia is the right the right option but it's also for those people who are really vulnerable those people who for example they there might be family pressures at home there might be money pressures we, we don't know what's going on as we as we've discussed and 
we have to recognize that the legislation is for all of those people. And my personal conviction is that I, I think we the law exists to protect vulnerable people in our society. And so we can't um, or shouldn't inflict something that will open them up to further abuse. But I think what you just said there, Danielle, about the laws there to protect the vulnerable is a beautiful summary of it, um, rather than restricting choice. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. For more of our written resources on the End of Life Choice Act, including answers to the 14 most frequently asked questions that we get on euthanasia, head to our End of Life Choice information page, maxim.org.nz slash EOLC. To hear more from us and to keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. From the team at Maxim, Matewa. Goodbye for now.